the stone won't fall until the podcast of the dragon comes to your device. Hey everybody, my name is Morgan. You might know me as the Grey Warder on Twitter and Discord. Welcome to the seventh episode of Podcast of the Dragon. Today I'm finishing up my deep dive into Egwene in the eye of the world. I'll ponder her perceptions of Perrin's new power, sketch their flight from Shatter Logoth from her point of view, continue to examine how she copes with trauma, and explore what happens once she reaches her breaking point. The shock of freezing cold water on the body is really intense. I once jumped into a mountain river. I leaped off a short cliff and I fell five or six feet into water over my head. It was so cold my heart actually stopped for a second. It seized in my chest like my body was telling me this is too much. And if I had been a little bit older or in a little bit worse shape, I feel like I could potentially have had a heart attack, like it might actually have killed me. It was pretty frightening. But I think if rather than feeling just happy and relaxed that day, it was just a summer day and I had just gone swimming with a friend, I had leaped into that river while running for my life, where I was just surging with adrenaline. My heart wouldn't even have noticed. There's something about the intensity of existential anxiety that holds other physiological reactions in check. That night in Shatter Logoth, I see Egwene fleeing the city with Perrin and the Trollocs starting to chase them. They're galloping on their horses and she's falling behind kicking Bella and flagging her with the reins and trying to get her to go faster and just so fucking scared. She's had this constant surging, just ebbing and flowing of fear and the immediacy of the chase with the Trollocs on them and with that sense of adrenaline just pounding in her head down to her fingertips, feeling so aware and alive. I think that while the cold when she fell in the river was stunning, she never would have lost her head. She'd have been very clear-headed and just kept it together while she was getting across the river. And I think as she did it, she was fearing the worst. Like, she knows that she's probably going to be okay and that there's an impending time coming up where she'll get to sit and think and feel lost. Because she is so deathly afraid people she cares about have died or suffered even worse fates. If you're a smart and realistic person and you understand that that's definitely a good possibility, that something like that has happened, once you finally get out of danger, that anticipation of grief, I can see that being in her head, even as she's still in the freezing cold water holding onto the stirrup or the reins and letting Bella tug her along. When they hit the shallows on the other side of the RNL, she'd have been soaked and totally dragged down by her clothes, 
probably more so than we got the description from Perrin's narrative because she still had her cloak and she also had skirts and that's just going to cause more drag. But at least her clothes would have been wool and wet wool stays warm. So hopefully she wouldn't have been too cold. I guess it would have depended on how much of her clothing was linen. I think like Perrin, the first thing that she did upon getting out of the river was to call for people. In Perrin's narrative, he shouts for people and all he hears is Trollocs on the other side of the river. I think Egwene would have called for quite some time and she especially would have called for him. I think she was convinced that he drowned because she was sure that he lost his horse. She heard two splashes, I'm pretty sure. And because he didn't answer, it probably didn't occur to her that Perrin would have swum mindfully across the river to use the least amount of energy and make the best use of the current to aid him in getting across. He would have swum as parallel as possible. Um, whereas an animal like Bella will fall in and will just swim with the motion of the river. So Bella probably swam as much downstream as across. And so they end up several miles down river. And when Perrin is looking for her, it says that he actually covers several miles, kind of dashing from cover to cover before he finally finds Bella's prints that lead him to the thicket that she's hiding in. So she gets ashore and it's a new moon, so there is only starlight for her to see by. She gets up the bank, she calls for everyone for a while before she gives up and she starts looking for shelter. She wouldn't have known if there were Trollocs, but she probably considered it and deduced that it was unlikely. She would have remembered Moraine and Lon saying that shadows spawn fear water, and she would have known from studying her father's map that there is no bridge between Maradon and Whitebridge, so she would have figured that chances were good that there were no shadow spawn on that side of the RNL, and she would have felt pretty safe making a fire. So she would have gotten into the shelter of the stand of trees, which was a mixture of leather leaf, which I have actually looked up since it seems to be Robert Jordan's favorite tree. And it looks like it's basically the one that he would use. There's multiple species of it. I think he's talking about the Adirondack leather leaf, and it looks like it's basically just a, a bush with a whole bunch of sticks and leaves. It looks kind of like a rhododendron with a lot fewer leaves. Um, and cedar with a big hemlock. So cedar trees would give her a lot of good tinder and she would have found kindling and wood. When she was digging in her pocket for her flint and steel she would see that she lost it. And it's like well shit. At that point she would have been having little lessons with Moraine because she would have been pushing Moraine for knowledge already. They went aside every single night to have talks, and they had fires because it's cold. Uh, spring is late coming that year. And I can see Moraine would just use the power to start the fire, and Egwene would be eager to see channeling and wanting to learn how to do it. And I think that Moraine probably showed her how to do it, and guided her through it and let her try and maybe she managed it once and so this time she got it going 
I can see Egwene focusing on small tasks so as to not freak out. And as she's starting to calm down, her fight-or-flight responses are becoming quiescent. And she's pretty convinced Perrin drowned. She's terrified for the others. She couldn't see or hear anybody across the river. So to keep from freaking out about not being alone, she probably took off her cloak and her dress and hung them up so that they would dry off. And she probably rubbed Bella down really well and gave her some oats and ate some of her own food that she brought with her because she had packed her saddlebags full of food and everything that she would have needed because she was prepared when she said that she was going to go with them. She was on top of it. She had everything she needed. I'm guessing she may have cried a little bit. I sure as shit would have. And she may have engaged in a bit of buyer's remorse, some regretful introspection, wishing she had never left home because no amount of adventure would have been worth what she went through that night, where, after all of that horrible shit, she ended up by herself in the dark on the other side of the river, thinking that Perrin had drowned. And then I can see her getting really angry with herself because the boys aren't choosing their fate. And I could see her sitting by her fire and thinking to herself that for her to regret that she didn't stay behind in Emmons Field when the boys had no choice, that they would have gone through that night in Shatter Logoth no matter what, because they've been drafted, because the Dark One wants them. She would have felt ashamed of herself for feeling any regret whatsoever for not staying home once she thought about the boys and how they were stuck with this fate, no matter what. And it would have helped her to retain her courage. It would have dried her tears. It would have firmed her up. And she would have stopped feeling regretful. As much as one can stop feeling regretful after such an enormous shit show of a night. She would have been scared, sad, really exhausted, and probably decided that she would just figure stuff out in the morning. She probably slept off and on, but not totally. She kept the fire burning, probably for about eight hours. Uh, it was about midnight when they left the city. Maybe took them about half an hour to get out. I would say that it was no later than one o'clock in the morning by the time she was making her fire. And it says in Perrin's narrative that he slept long after sunrise. Um, she's awake. When Perrin finds her, likely really full of grief and anxiety, miserable, trying to decide what to do. And then Perrin comes along and he scares the shit out of her. When Perrin wakes up the morning after Shatter Logoth, he is determined that Egwene must be alive. And he deduces that she'll be downriver because he's a stronger swimmer than she is. So he walks for a few miles before he finds Bella's hoofprints, um, and he's very joyful about it. The whole situation with Shatter Logoth was terrible for him, so to have been able to find her, at least, was good for his morale. He follows Bella's trail to this dense stand of trees, and it says, Still grinning, he pushed his way through the interwoven branches, not caring how much noise he made. Abruptly, he stepped into a little clearing under the hemlock and stopped. Behind a small fire, Egwene crouched, her face grim, with a thick branch held like a club and her back against Bella's flank. 
I guess I should have called out, he said with an abashed shrug. Tossing her club down, she ran to throw her arms around him. I thought you had drowned. You're still wet. Here, sit by the fire and warm yourself. You lost your horse, didn't you? He let her push him to a place by the fire and rubbed his hands over the flames, grateful for the warmth. She produced an oiled paper packet from her saddlebags and gave him some bread and cheese. The package had been so tightly wrapped that even after its dunking, the food was dry. Here you were worrying about her, and she's done better than you did. Bella got me across, Egwene said, patting the shaggy mare. She headed away from the Trollocs and just towed me along. She paused. I haven't seen anybody else, Perrin. He heard the unspoken question. Regretfully eyeing the packet that she was rewrapping, he licked the last crumbs from his fingers before speaking. I've seen no one but you since last night. No Fays or Trollocs either, there's that. Rand has to be all right, Egwene said, quickly adding. They all do. They have to. They're probably looking for us right now. They might find us any time now. Moraine is an Aes Sedai, after all. I keep being reminded of that, he said. Burn me, I wish I could forget. I did not hear you complaining when she stopped the Trollocs from catching us, Egwene said tartly. I just wish we could do without her. He shrugged uncomfortably under her steady gaze. I suppose we can't, though. I've been thinking. Her eyebrows rose, but he was used to surprise whenever he claimed an idea. Even when his ideas were as good as theirs, they always remembered how deliberate he was in thinking of them. We can wait for Lon and Moraine to find us. Of course, she cut in. Moraine Sedai said she would find us if we were separated. He let her finish, then went on. Or the Trollocs could find us first. Moraine could be dead, too. All of them could be. No, Egwene, I'm sorry, but they could be. I hope they are all safe. I hope they'll walk up to this fire any minute. But hope is like a piece of string when you're drowning. It just isn't enough to get you out by itself. Egwene closed her mouth and stared at him with her jaw set. Finally, she said, You want to go downriver to Whitebridge? If Moraine Sedai doesn't find us here, that's where she will look next. I suppose, he said slowly, that Whitebridge is where we should go. But the Fades probably know that, too. That's where they'll be looking, and this time we don't have an Aes Sedai or a warder to protect us. I suppose you're going to suggest running off somewhere the way Matt wanted to, hiding somewhere the Fades or Trollocs won't find us, or Moraine Sedai either? Don't think I haven't considered it, he said quietly. But every time we think we are free, Fades and Trollocs find us again. I don't know if there is any place we could hide from them. I don't like it much, but we need more rain. I don't understand then, Perrin. Where do we go? He blinked in surprise. She was waiting for his answer, waiting for him to tell her what to do. It had never occurred to him that she would look to him to take the lead. Egwene never liked doing what someone else had planned out, and she never let anybody tell her what to do, except maybe the wisdom, and he thought sometimes she balked at that. In these chapters with Perrin and Egwene together... Robert Jordan tells us a lot about Egwene, using one of his most balanced point of views. For someone so conservative, Perrin is really good at reserving judgment. And it's so nice, because up to this point we've only been seeing Egwene through Rand's eyes, and Rand has been judging the shit out of her. 
and he's been trying to be controlling because she's not being what he wants her to be. She's upsetting him because she's embracing change and making different choices from those approved by the two rivers, and God forbid she wants to be an Aes Sedai or unbraid her hair. Perrin, on the other hand, shuts his mouth and minds his own business, and he doesn't share his opinions with her about what she should do with her hair or her life or anything else. He just accepts her. And so through Perrin's eyes, we are shown someone who is resourceful and capable, someone ready to throw down when she needs to, someone who holds her own and does her share. Perrin is so much less frustrated with her, and maybe it's partly because there's not the sense of, I don't know, entitlement that Rand has because they were supposed to get married and there's always been this village-wide presumption that they were, like, marked out for each other. For Perrin, because she's just his friend, he's able to accept her more as she is, which is one of the reasons why I ship them so much more. I just feel their relationship is much more genuine, and I like their dynamics so much better. Egwene has just as little patience with him as with Rand, as far as their mistrust of Aes Sedai. After last night, she's more on Team Moraine than ever. For her, considering everything Moraine did to save them and how hard she's been working, Egwene can't fathom why the boys would be mistrustful of Aes Sedai at this point. Egwene is still incredibly naive, and while a lot of the boys' prejudices are rooted in superstitions and lore, things that are to Egwene's mind proven false by the evidence that Moraine's behavior provides, there's plenty of validity in their lack of trust, when Rand says to Egwene, whatever Moraine is, it doesn't say anything about the rest of them, he's really, really right. Egwene is ready to take on trust that Moraine is representative of all Aes Sedai, and Rand's wariness is much more wise. The first time we see parents Taviran tugging at work on someone, pulling them beneath his leadership, which is something we see over and over again throughout the series. The two rivers name him their lord, queens swear fealty, the fucking white cloaks join him. We see it working on Egwene. And I dislike attributing any of Egwene's actions or choices to Taviran tugging. Last episode, I said that Egwene wouldn't be in the barn insisting to an Aes Sedai that she's coming on the journey if it weren't part of the pattern, as in a Taviran pulling on her. And I hate saying it, because we know from Ravens that Egwene has wanted to leave the Two Rivers since she was a little kid. But we know that Taviran tugging can't make people do things that they would never do. In the case of Egwene joining the party in the barn and looking Moraine in the eyes and saying that she's coming, that is so central to who she is as a person that I feel like the strength of the Taviran tugging needed to help her along is about that of a fortifying drink. When it comes to following parents' leadership, it's a much less likely scenario, but definitely not at all impossible. She is shocked and traumatized after the previous night, and Perrin having a concrete plan may be all it took for her to say, yeah, be in charge. I'm overwhelmed, and this is not the game I signed on for. Holy shit. 
when he puts out the idea that they should cut cross-country to Camelin because they don't know enough, they have books but not enough books or the right books, they don't know that it is a terrible idea, but it's almost like Perrin's dumbass idea and Egwene's willingness to fall in with it. It says he expected she would take charge. She was always bullying him into something, and that was all right with him. It's like the pattern is steering him toward Elias, and part of that is that Egwene is confident enough in him to follow his lead. Perrin uses the term bully for Egwene, saying she's always bullying him into something, and when he first meets Elias, Elias even says to him, she pushes you around like a bantam rooster. And in fairness, Egwene does exhibit bullying behavior, which she learned from Nynaeve. And the big example is writing Bella. And this is one of those things where logic butts up against Egwene's pride and her desire not to be infantilized. Perrin may be right that he's too big to ride Bella, Though, according to the Wheel of Time companion, he and Rand weigh the same. They both weigh 235 pounds, and Rand rides her sometimes. And Egwene disagrees that he's too big to ride Bella, and it's very important to her that things are equal and fair. And for her to be the only one who rides makes her feel like she's in a silly and childish position. It's inherently unequal. You cannot remove this from sexism and whether he means it or not it makes her appear weaker and she can't escape from that it feels like being babied and so for her it's childish to be the only one who rides and her other option seems to be like to refuse to ride and that also feels childish and so for her to take it in turns is best what I'm taking from Egwene's behavior is that she doesn't want any preferential treatment, and I don't think she would be able to actually articulate it as, don't treat me any differently because I'm a woman, because that's, you know, like feminism hasn't come to the two rivers, so she can't use those words, but that is the sentiment. That is what she is struggling with. And I actually put the question to my wife of, Here's the situation, there's this horse, and the dude thinks he's too big, but maybe not really, and she was like, I would have him ride the horse in the morning when the horse has more strength, and then trade off, and she would ride the horse in the afternoon, and then it would be equitable, and when the horse had, you know, walked a larger portion of the day, then she would have the lighter rider, and it seemed pretty reasonable um, and a, a reasonable compromise. So it's equal. Both people ride the horse. And it's also like the horse has the heavier rider earlier in the day when she has more energy. And that seemed like, you know, a reasonable compromise. But parents resistant to it and his logic isn't unsound it's reasonable for him to think that he's too big especially if bella is looking at him like what the fuck every time he puts his foot in the stirrup and Egwene deals with it really childishly she attempts to channel Nynaeve's bulldozer attitude to get her way and it isn't cool and i feel bad for perrin because he doesn't want to fight and so he gives in some people say 
R.J. failed at feminism in his books, but I don't think I necessarily agree. And I admit that my perspective is maybe not the best. I'm a cisgender female, but I'm a gender nonconforming queer woman who has never had a normal experience of being a woman because men do not behave toward me the way they do toward most women, so I do not experience the world the way most women do. And I'm not just gender nonconforming, but gender queer. I have really androgynous features and still in my 40s get mistaken for a boy. The point is I cannot speak with an understanding of what it is like to be an average woman. I cannot speak with an understanding of what it is like to be a man. I cannot speak with an understanding of what it is like to be trans. I cannot speak with an understanding of what it is like to be anyone with any experience of the world when it comes to gender, except for myself. I have an utterly unique perspective of the world when it comes to gender. So I may be guilty of saying outdated or unknowingly sexist things because I don't get it. I don't have the same perspective. I don't have the experience. And all I can hope is to have that pointed out to me. But I do know what it's like to be raised as a girl in the 80s and to be and to have that ingrained thought of not being able to do something because you're a girl um, and to assume that the boys are better at everything. I know what that's like, even if I don't know what it's like, even if I have a certain privilege of never experiencing the kind of gross or patronizing behavior from men that seems to be the general day-to-day -day life of so many women. Um, so many women that I was never really aware of until I was in a relationship with a woman. I'm, I'm bisexual also, and so I was in a opposite-sex relationship for years and years. I was married to a man, and so I had no idea until I started dating my wife, and she was like, oh yeah, this is what it's like to be a woman, and you deal with all of this kind of shit, and I was like, really? I had no idea. So there's a lot that I don't know or understand when it comes to the experience of women. And so I cannot necessarily 100% say, but nonetheless, I don't think that RJ failed at feminism so much as that you can't write about something that you don't experience with the lens of someone who totally gets it. And in that way, even I couldn't really write about feminism. And that does not make me any less of a woman. And I don't think that makes Robert Jordan get any less of A for effort as a Southern male baby boomer really trying to get what it's like, even if in some ways he fucked up. Um, he tried, and I know, I, 
I wrote a story with a Jewish character once, and I'm not Jewish. I did research, and I tried to empathize. I ran it past Jewish people, but there's nuance that you miss, and I think it's okay. There's nothing wrong with trying to empathize, even if you don't have that shared experience, and I think Robert Jordan did plenty of stuff well with his different societies having different gender roles where nothing is any particular way and a person like Egwene who is unsatisfied with how things are as regards to gender in her native village being able to go out in the world and see that things are not the same way anywhere else and that nobody gets to tell her how she has to be because she's a woman and one of the things that I took from Ravens is that that is a theme in her character that he never made blatantly clear, but it's there. And I feel like her bullying Perrin when it comes to the horse is her being like, don't be sexist. You ride the horse too. Don't treat me different because I'm a girl. It's my personal opinion that Blighting Fires is not the only channeling Egwene tries to do over the course of the trip. I think that she tried to channel in the battle before Shatter Logoth. I think she tried to channel while they were in Shatter Logoth. I think she tried during the White Cloak capture. I think she was constantly attempting it during stressful situations. But the only time she was successful was her fire, her first night when she gets out of the river. Which, if you're only going to be successful once, that was the time to do it. She probably wouldn't have died without it, but it was comforting and it was good for morale. Bear Grylls says that a fire is always really good for morale in a survival situation. And I think that that was the right time to have it work. When Perrin finds out that she's been channeling, he's freaked. Their first night, the first night after Shatter Logoth, they've traveled all day. They stop and make a camp. He manages to go out and get a rabbit with his sling, and she's laying a fire. He comes back from hunting, and she's kneeling by the wood with her eyes closed. And he's like, you can't wish a fire. Egwene gave a jump at his first words and twisted around to stare at him with a hand to her throat. You startled me. I was lucky, he said, holding up the rabbit. Get your flint and steel. We eat well tonight, at least. I don't have a flint, she said slowly. It was in my pocket, and I lost it in the river. Then how? It was so easy back there on the riverbank, Perrin. Just the way Moraine said I showed me, I just reached out. and She gestured as if grasping for something, then let her hand fall with a sigh. I can't find it now. Perrin licked his lips uneasily. The power? She nodded, and he stared at her. Are you crazy? I mean, the one power? You can't just play around with something like that. It was so easy, Perrin. I can do it. I can channel the power. He took a deep breath. I'll make a fire bow, Egwene. Promise you won't try this, this thing again. I will not. Her jaw firmed in a way that made him sigh. Would you give up that axe of yours, Perrin Ibarra? Would you walk around with one hand tied behind your back? I won't do it. 
I'll make the fire bow, he said wearily. At least don't try it again tonight, please. She acquiesced grudgingly, and even after the rabbit was roasting on a spit over the flames, he had the feeling she felt she could have done it better. She would not give up trying, either, every night, though the best she ever did was a trickle of smoke that vanished almost immediately. Her eyes dared him to say a word, and he wisely kept his mouth shut. It's foolish for her to play around with a power, and she's childish in her insistence about it, but I don't blame her for a second. After Shatter Logoth, I'd want to practice, too. Because she's right. Would he throw his axe away? She doesn't have an axe. She has a teeny belt knife. She was prepared to defend herself when Perrin pushed into her little shelter under the hemlock. She had a club, but she has no weapons. I would want to practice, too. So, Egwene was not unscathed by Shatter Logoth. As she and Perrin are traveling from when they cross the RNL until they meet Elias. It says, Nowhere did they see a road or a plowed field or chimney smoke in the distance or any other sign of human habitation, at least none where men still dwelt. Once the remains of tall stone ramparts encircled a hilltop, parts of roofless stone houses stood inside the fallen circle. The forest had long swallowed it. Trees grew right through everything, and spider webs of old creeper enveloped the big stone blocks. Another time they came on a stone tower, broken-topped and brown with old moss, leaning on the huge oak whose thick roots were slowly toppling it. But they found no place where men had breathed in living remembrance. Memories of Shatter Logoth kept them away from the ruins and hurried their footsteps until they were once more deep in places that never seemed to have known of human footsteps. Dreams plagued Perrin's sleep, fearful dreams. Balsamon was in them, chasing him through mazes, hunting him, but Perrin never met him face to face, as so far as he remembered, and their journey had been enough to bring a few bad dreams. Egwene complained of nightmares about Shatter Logoth, especially the two nights after they found the ruined fort in the abandoned tower. Perrin kept his own counsel, even when he woke sweating and shaking in the dark. She was looking to him to lead them safely to Camelin, not share worries about which they could do nothing. So, she has some nightmares, but overall, she's dealing better than Perrin, which we will see later on. I'm going to read a bit of information about Elias from the Wheel of Time Companion. It has several paragraphs about him, but I'm just going to read a little bit here. Elias was born in 943 N.E. in Tyr, the son of poor farmers. And that means that he was 55 when he meets up with Perrin and Egwene, or will turn 55 that year. In 957 N.E., he ran off to the borderland seeking adventure. So when he was 14, he ran away. By 959 N.E., he had become a soldier in Shinar, serving along the Blight border, and was bonded by Rena Hafton in 965 N.E., so he was 22 when he became a warder. He met Lon in 969 N.E. during the last year of Lon's training in Shinar. So he met Lon when Lon was 16. Rena allowed him to go because of the circumstance of his becoming a wolf brother, but she never freed him. So he is still bonded to his Aes Sedai. 
When they meet up with Elias, Egwene is a little wary of him because he's weird, but she still doesn't know to be very fearful of people, and frankly, she's more concerned about shoving food in her face because she's so hungry. And it's not until the wolves come to the fire that she's freaked out. But learning about the talking to wolves, she thinks that's pretty cool, and she frankly would have loved to learn how to do it if it were a teachable skill. I'm honestly very interested in what her internal narrative might be as she watched everything unfold between Elias and Perrin. I can see her being concerned for Perrin already since he was obviously struggling after Shatter Logoth, and she would observe that hearing that he could talk to wolves makes Perrin super uncomfortable and that he doesn't like it. But I can see her hearing that information and looking for evidence about it. Like, why would the guy say that? Is it true? Is it part of what's going on? Because I'm sure the cogs have been turning in her head this whole time. Why are the Trollocs after the boys? It's a giant puzzle for her until the very end. And now that the immediate existential fear has died away and they're no longer super hungry, I can see her taking this statement that Elias has made about Perrin that he can talk to wolves and looking for evidence and wondering if it's part of everything that has been going on and just wondering what to make of it all. And then when it's confirmed, when Perrin tells her as they're running from the ravens about the second sweep of ravens coming, and being, and her saying to him, it's true, you can talk to them. Honestly, she probably thought it was the coolest thing since she saw Moraine throwing lightning. I think Egwene would also have spent a lot of time imagining how Perrin was feeling about his situation. Obviously, his behavior means that it's something he's struggling with and unhappy with. And she would want him to know that she accepts him and that he's still who she always knew and that she loves him still. She cares about Perrin. And I could see her thinking through and puzzling this whole thing out. And I could see her concern for him and her interest in what's happening to him almost counterbalancing her trauma or aiding in her processing it. Because having a problem to work on helps Egwene process and deal with things. When they join up with the Tinkers, there's a distinct difference with Perrin and Egwene and how they deal with stuff. And in considering it, I've come to realize that their time with the Tuatha'an is the first time Robert Jordan gives us this compare-contrast of men versus women and their coping with trauma. So right away, we're getting this subtle hint of women being better at dealing with trauma. And it's a theme that we see in small glimpses in the beginning. And as Rand becomes more and more troubled, it becomes more pronounced until Sorlia and Catswain make their pact to teach Rand laughter and tears again because he has become so hard. And Jordan has them have the discussion of the difference between being hard and being strong and how men sometimes confuse the two, which I think is RJ using his female characters to have a discussion about something he probably did not know to call toxic masculinity. I think very early, here he is showing how Egwene is dealing so much better with the trauma than Perrin is. 
Egwene takes the time with the tinkers to have fun, to relax and decompress, while Perrin frets and broods. To be fair, Perrin didn't have a hot guy eye-fucking him the whole time and being all hot and bothered, so maybe if he had had someone constantly undressing him with their eyes... Actually, that's a lie. The women were belly dancing in front of him, and he wanted to shrivel up and die because people from the Two Rivers are so sex-phobic. I know that Brandon Sanderson has said he is mostly cool with everything they're doing with the TV show, and there are only a couple of things he feels some concern over. I hope those things are that people say fucking instead of flaming, and that the characters will be so much sluttier. God, I want them to be sluttier than they are. Them being sexually stifled is so frustrating. They make so many dumb choices because of it, and I hate it. Anyway... Perrin is annoyed with Egwene for being lighthearted and managing to have a good time. The two of them are the most practical of the Emmons fielders, and it's one of the reasons that I'm very fond of both of them. But one of the reasons I stay fond of Egwene and struggle with Perrin over time is that Egwene's sense of practicality allows her to be mentally flexible and maintain a positive attitude, even when things are super fucked up later on, whereas Perrin gets brittle because I guess he's a man? I think that that's Jordan's theme here, that men struggle. They're with the Tinkers for several days. I said during my episode, Perrin's a dirty boy, that they were with them for a week, but I was wrong. Um, they actually spend multiple nights between leaving the Tinkers and when they reach the Steading. Um, so... They were with them for several days, but not a whole week. And Egwene is spending all of her time hanging out with Isla and dancing with Aram. It says, Once he managed to get Egwene alone beside a wagon painted in green and yellow. Enjoying yourself, aren't you? He said. Why shouldn't I? She fingered the blue beads around her neck, smiling at them. We don't all have to work at being miserable the way you do. Don't we deserve a little chance to enjoy ourselves? Aram stood not far off. He never got far from Egwene, with his arms folded across his chest, a little smile on his face, half smugness and half challenge. Perrin lowered his voice. I thought you wanted to get to Tarvalon. You won't learn to be an Aes Sedai here. Egwene tossed her head. And I thought you didn't like me wanting to become an Aes Sedai, she said too sweetly. Blood and ashes, do you believe we're safe here? Are these people safe with us here? A fade could find us any time. Her hand trembled on the beads. She lowered it and took a deep breath. Whatever is going to happen will happen whether we leave today or next week. That's what I believe now. Enjoy yourself, Perrin. It might be the last chance we have. She brushed his cheek sadly with her fingers. Then Aram held out his hand to her and she darted to him, already laughing again. So she deals better, and Aram was probably a great distraction. I bet he helped a great deal. It's nice to have a hot guy who dances like a bird paying attention to you, particularly when he comes without any strings or complications. The nice thing about Perrin is you never get a vibe like he's guarding his bro's girl. It's more like he's just genuinely concerned because he knows Aram's a creep. It says, uh, 
He heard Egwene coming back, singing to herself. Scrambling to his feet, he went to meet her at the edge of the firelight. She stopped short, looking at him with her head tilted to one side. In the dark, he could not read her expression. "'You've been gone a long time,' he said. "'Did you have fun?' "'We ate with his mother,' she answered. "'And then we danced and laughed. "'It seems like forever since I danced. "'He reminds me of Will Alcine. "'You always had sense enough not to let Will put you in his pocket.' Aram is a gentle boy who is fun to be with, she said in a tight voice. He makes me laugh. Heron sighed. I'm sorry. I'm glad you had fun dancing. Abruptly, she flung her arms around him, weeping on his shirt. Awkwardly, he patted her hair. I told you I'm sorry, Egwene. I really am glad you had fun dancing. Really? Tell me they're alive, she mumbled into his chest. What? She pushed back to arm's length, her hands on his arms, and looked up at him in the darkness. Rand and Matt, the others, tell me they are alive. He took a deep breath and looked around uncertainly. They are alive, he said finally. Good. She scrubbed at her cheeks with quick fingers. That is what I wanted to hear. Good night, Perrin. Sleep well. Standing on tiptoe, she brushed a kiss across his cheek and hurried past him before he could speak. Heron, after they leave the Tinkers, wants to know why Egwene spent all that time with Isla. And Egwene tells him that she was giving her advice on being a woman, and Perrin's like, nobody tells us how to be men, we just are. And Egwene's like, that's why you suck at it. The Tuathon have very different ways, and it's obvious that they're more comfortable with their bodies and probably with their sexuality. Um, and you could tell that with the the Cesara, the belly dancing, and how amusing they found Perrin's embarrassment. Um, that all kind of points to it. I'm wondering if the advice that Isla gave Egwene included some kind of sex education that she never would have gotten in the Two Rivers. I'm wondering if Isla had frank talks with her because she knew that Egwene was an innocent village girl from a much more conservative culture, and maybe she let her know... The reserve that you're used to and the men that you know is not something you will necessarily encounter in the wider world. Men will try to have sex with you, <clears throat> including my grandson. Here are some ways to tell if they're hitting on you. Here are some things to watch out for. Maybe she talked to her about birth control methods, though she may have, no you know, Egwene may have known about them already, having learned from Nynaeve in the course of her wisdom studies, like, not because, like, you need to know these to use them, because that would have made Nynaeve, like, faint, because fucking Two Rivers and their sexual conservatism, but just because as a wisdom, you know, knowing herbs, you would know about birth control. And, you know, as far as Isla kind of giving Egwene warnings about Aram. I mean, maybe she was more just kind of like hinting um, and also kind of giving Egwene advice to keep her from getting pregnant, not knowing that Egwene is so sexually conservative that there was never any real threat of that. She probably wouldn't even make out with him. That's another thing I regret. I wish Egwene were not so sexually conservative. I wish she would have just hit it and quit it with Gowan. Ugh. Anyway. Aram was very useful in helping Egwene process trauma. 
He gave her an immersive experience in Tinker culture. It was very relaxing and freeing, and there were no expectations. And between that and her concern for Perrin, it was really good in helping her have a decent attitude adjustment and helping her get to the point where she could at least be reasonably okay. Okay enough to have confidence in herself again and her ability to cope. But the thing about trauma is that you may think that you've recovered and are back doing fine. But a lot of times what happens is you've recovered and are no longer in shock. You're perfectly functional and you do great as long as everything is okay. But all it's going to take is just one more bad thing and you crack. The Ravens. They were the last straw. We get the scene from Perrin's perspective, and it is our first action scene where Perrin's wolf senses are put into play, and we get to see what they add to his point of view. We see his descriptions of the lay of the land as he and Elias scan everything from the hilltops, and then we see what he gets from the wolves. Egwene sees nothing, and almost nothing gets communicated to her, when Perrin finally gets sick of waiting at the base of the hills as Elias, like Belly, crawls up to look around and see if the coast is clear, and he starts going up the hills with Elias, she's forced to stay at the bottom with Bella, so she has to wait by herself. She has the least amount of information. And while she doesn't get the horrible foreknowledge that they are doomed to be overrun, and... She doesn't struggle with the dilemma of whether or not she should kill her friend to keep them from suffering a terrible death. I imagine that she felt so much stress and dread, and RJ makes it a point to show them like nauseated with exhaustion and fear. Even with the horrible run between the Ravens, Egwene is incredibly resilient. The relief of being inside the steading, like a truly safe place where the shadow spawn won't go, a safe place that isn't a murder city, makes her hopeful and cheerful, like she's getting dinner started and she's cracking jokes, she's like, fuck it, we made it. And Perrin is so broody and down on himself because he's horrified and sick from thinking about mercy killing her. And it fucks him up that his mind went there. And Egwene keeps cracking these jokes and not getting anywhere. And feeling more and more strained and more and more left out. And more and more like, what the fuck, guys? We fucking survived this. And you're acting like it's a funeral. And it's harshing my mellow. I don't know if that made me sound old. Anyway, if they had left with her... She was made to be Aegeel. She needed friends to joke with her about they all, how they would all have made the ravens puke or something. Egwene feels so relieved. She finally thinks they're safe. She's real, real ready to be safe. Perrin and Elias have gone off to the pool to have their conversation where Elias is like, what, you think she's a fucking drag and that's why you were going to kill her? And Perrin's like all horrified, like, no, oh my God. And Elias is like, yeah, no. So shut the fuck up, quit being a little bitch and come back to the fire. 
They get the sending from the wolves. They come running back. They're like, put out the fire. And Egwene doesn't know what's happening. And once again, she has no information as Perrin is seeing multiple perspectives. And he explains that men are coming, probably for the water, but they smell wrong. Why should they bother us? She demanded. We're supposed to be safe here. It's supposed to be safe. Flight, there has to be someplace safe. After shattered Logoth, Egwene was, let's find more rain. We'll continue the journey. I'm going to go to Tarvalon and be an Aes Sedai. After the ravens, she says, this place was supposed to be safe. There has to be a safe place. And when they're hiding from the white cloaks, sheltering in Hawkwing's statue's hand, she asks, Perrin, will you dance with me at Sunday if we're home by then? If we're home by then. She's done. She wants to go home. She's had enough. I'm trying to imagine the scene when they're captured. I see her standing in darkness with Perrin, her heart pounding. She's terrified. She's clutching Bella's reins and sweaty hands. It doesn't say how long they wait. When the White Cloaks call out to them, does she feel despair? Or does she not believe that they're as terrible as Perrin knows that they are because she doesn't understand what it means that they smell wrong? That tension that you get in movies where when people are hiding and you're desperately hoping that they won't be found, does she feel sickened or desperate as the White Cloaks call out? Either way, she believes that they'll kill them if they don't surrender. They're... Tell her, you have one minute to come down or you'll be killed. And parents standing there wildly thinking, if we run, if we run. And she derails Perrin and says, if we don't come out, they'll kill us. So they come out, parents stumbling down ahead of her. The torches had to have been blinding. All of the white cloaks were holding torches. And so at least she didn't get like a full graphic vision of the men being killed. I don't think people th give that much consideration when they think about Egwene in the eye of the world that she saw two people being killed by her friend. She's seen Trollocs killed before, and I'm sure she's seen dead people. I mean, it's the fucking Renaissance time. You know, they had illnesses or plagues go through her village. She's seen dead people, but people dying by violence, not so much. She knows the White Cloaks are assholes. They had that run-in at the gates of Barlon, but seeing people be hurt is still fucked up. So seeing a wolf hopper soaring through the air and munching one and then Perrin go ballistic, she had to have been so scared. And then after Perrin just cuts two men down, they cold cock him. And then she's seized and bound. And for a short time, she's afraid that Perrin's dead. So that had to have been awful too. To even for a short time, think that you're all alone again. 
to think that your friends are dead and also be surrounded by strange, scary, unfriendly men. Of all of the things I wish were reflected upon by Egwene in the eye of the world, this is the only one where I think Robert Jordan out and out dropped the ball. For all of the other things, for her to think about Shatter Logoth, she would have had to go from considering Matt's dagger into a reminiscence. And the way Jordan did things in the early books, it would have been an expository reminiscence, which wasn't the best, though Though he could have simply done something like she glanced at Matt's dagger as she arranged the blankets on the litter and quickly away, shuddering. It was so hard to think about that night or something like that. With the events at the Eye of the World, it's okay. That's fine that she doesn't think back about that. Everything that happens there is a little weird and convoluted anyway, to put it mildly, so it's not really necessary to hear her thoughts about that. All of that other stuff that happens in this book, fine, whatever. But here, first of all, you have a perfect setup for her to look back on this during her first point of view in The Dragon Reborn. They are confronted by Dane Bornholtz shortly before they reach Tarvalon. Her and Nynaeve, Varen, Hiran, and Matt on his litter. And her inner narrative right before she starts blowing up the ground in front of him and the other White Cloaks is, I won't be chained again because she is so hair-triggered with her trauma because she's still relatively newly freed from her captivity as a Demani. Rather than leaving it there, he should have continued with, certainly not to you shitbags, I've already had a taste of your hospitality and it sucks, fuck you, boom, and blown up the ground in front of him. Egwene is a prisoner multiple times throughout the series, and it's almost a theme with her growth of how she deals with captivity. She has short captures. Uh, she's captured by brigands and by the Black Aja in the Dragon Reborn. She has longer captures. She spends a few weeks as Demani. They talk about Godrand after veins of gold. Egwene, who is Rand's counterpart. I don't want to call her his foil because a foil is used to make someone look better by contrast and I don't think that's what she is. She's his counterpart, her flame to his fang. She almost becomes the serpent swallowing its own tail. As she is consumed by the White Tower, she's taken captive and she rebuilds it from within with her acceptance of punishment, but not accepting her novice dress and this constant cycle of, you can beat me, but you can't beat me. And it feels like all of that is built on these captures of being Demani and being captured by the brigands and the Black Aja and all of what it does to her with her mental fortitude. But her first capture is by the White Cloaks. And she's held with them for a while, eight to ten days. It's a full moon when they're captured. And when Nynaeve goes to cut the horse lines, when she and Lana Moraine go to rescue them, it's described as a waning sliver. So it's not a full 14 days, 
maybe as much as 11 or 12, but I hope not because I don't want it to be that long because it had to be horrific, absolutely horrific. Either way, you have over a week of them having to walk all day with basically nooses around their neck and their hands behind their back. It says, uh, he walked with muscles tense, scanning the ground with anxious eyes. Whenever he glanced at Egwene, she was doing the same. When she met his eyes, her face was tight and frightened. Neither of them dared take their eyes off the ground long enough for more than a glance. And along with all of that fun, they get daily lectures from Jarrett Byer about torture techniques. So Egwene knows that Perrin is going to be hanged when they get to Amador, and presumably she's going to be tortured, even though Perrin thinks that Egwene still doesn't believe all the stuff that Byer tells them because she's still naive. Of all the many impacting things that happened to her in the first book, this one should have been one of the most impacting, even though the majority of it happens off screen. Robert Jordan has her be basically a POW for a short time, before he has her be one for a longer time in about six months. It's spring, it's probably about April at this point, and in October, or thereabouts, she's going to be made to Manny. And unlike Shatter Logoth or any of the events at the Eye of the World, she has a perfect opportunity in her first point of view in The Dragon Reborn to dive into her time as a white cloak prisoner and dredge it up and show us what she thinks about it. And the fact that it doesn't happen is disappointing. But I know very well that you can't think of everything when you're writing a long story and Rather than sitting on it and agonizing over it and making desperately certain that every teeny tiny part is totally perfect, Robert Jordan published his books instead, even though there were occasionally mistakes and missed opportunities. And because of that, his work is out there for us to read and enjoy. It's not sitting in a drawer like my novel, because there's no way to make something be perfect. So I'm much happier that... There's those occasional missed opportunities and we're actually reading and enjoying the Wheel of Time and that he didn't obsess over making everything perfect because when you do that, you never actually publish anything. Once they're rescued, Egwene and Nynaeve's relationship is altered. They have a returned closeness. For a while, they revert to Nynaeve being the big sister who Egwene can talk to and relate to, even if it's occasionally contentious. And at that moment, until she is freed from being Demani, it is at a point of low contention. Egwene is so happy to see her. She believed them all to be dead. She had done a good job of being hopeful up until the point that they were captured, but the White Cloaks had worn her down uh, when Lon comes in to rescue them. Is it really? Egwene gave a stifled sob. We thought you were dead. We thought you were all dead. Not yet. The warder's deep whisper was tinged with amusement. I know I really went hammer on Nynaeve the last episode, 
and I felt a little bad about it because there are so many great things about her. She came out into the world because she was scared for young people. She takes her wisdom responsibilities very seriously. She has a duty to the village, but she knew that it would take way too long for the council to decide who would come after the kids, and she didn't want to risk that they would be lost while the village in charges were dithering, so she took it upon herself to go and do what needed to be done. But all along, she has felt this anxiety to get back because it's her duty to be wisdom, and it's a duty that she has fought for. As we saw in Ravens, Mistress Baron talked her up constantly because no one thought she should be the apprentice, being taken on as the Wisdom's Apprentice at 14 seems really out there. So all along, Nynaeve's apprenticeship and her raising to Wisdom was unorthodox and frowned upon. And we know that because the minute that Tam and Rand come into Emmons Field, Whitconger, Senbui, they're all like, we got to do something about Nynaeve. She's way too young to be the Wisdom. And... Personally, I have never had to bully my way to get what I needed done done, but part of that is just that I don't care enough to do it, and I'm not in a position of leadership, and I guess I just have that luxury. And I guess Nynaeve's unwillingness to accept a weak position of power, her unwillingness to be pushed around, is admirable, even though she uses her temper as a weapon, which is not. But the nice thing about this journey for Nynaeve is that she's focusing her temper on the Aes Sedai, and Moraine can take it because she doesn't give a shit what Nynaeve thinks. She sees Nynaeve as a child, and her interest is to get her to go to the tower because Nynaeve will be talented, and she feels that once Nynaeve grows up a little, she has the potential to be a very good Aes Sedai, which she does. In fact, I honestly, the more I consider it, I think that Moraine kind of identifies with Nynaeve. She sees a lot of Nynaeve in herself, or a lot of herself in Nynaeve. One of the other things about Nynaeve is that however much she is one of my least favorite characters in a lot of ways, she does have one of the most satisfying character arc wrap-ups. I was very satisfied with where she ended up and how much she grew. And the person that she was at the end was actually someone that I liked a great deal, and that is excellent growth. So, coming back, Nynaeve and Egwene have a sense of returned closeness, helped by the fact that Nynaeve has accepted Egwene's choice. Yes, she'll die if she doesn't go for training. Mistress Baron's first apprentice died that way, and she has also pretty much decided that she will go to Tarvalon too. And her motivations of anger and vengeance are absurd, but whatever. Egwene is so grateful for Nynaeve's comfort. Women can give and take it in a way that men can't. And Jordan uses that to show differences in coping. And I never really thought about it before. But over the rest of the story, they deal with a number of disturbing things that visibly upset Egwene, which Rand observes without judgment. And when Egwene is upset by things like hearing the black wind... RJ shows her hugging Nynaeve, and a lot of authors would use this to show a distinction of weakness, like women are weak. But I don't think that was RJ's point. I think he was saying, here is some fucked shit that happened, and here is a healthy way two people are coping with it. Women deal with trauma better. And while his descriptions of 
the different powers show that he felt the inherent emotional makeup of men and women is different. His description of other cultures, like the Aiel, who aren't afraid to cry, shows that he also knew that this thing that he didn't know to call toxic masculinity wasn't part of men's internal makeup so much as part of how men are raised. And Egwene, with her excellent coping skills and the power of her attitude adjustments and the help of Nynaeve's comfort, goes from a state of hopelessness with the White Cloaks to feeling extremely hopeful once they're rescued, especially since Moraine believes Rand and Matt are alive, to the point when Rand runs into the kitchen of the Queen's Blessing and she's hugging him, she says, I knew you were alive. When Egwene enters Rand's point of view again, from Camelin to the Eye of the World, he notices signs that she's no longer so cavalier about adventure. He feels like she has second thoughts about going along to the Blight as they enter the ways. In the ways, she leaves the lines that lead to the waygates reluctantly. When they find the Trollocs that triggered the trap, and they're buried in the stone and it looks like it just boiled and grabbed them all she hides her face and clutches his arm for two bridges she's showing signs of strain she was pretty stoic before the horrible encounter with the ravens she powered through shatter logoth and now she's seeking comfort she cries when the boys finally confess about balsamon being in their dreams she needs some serious r and r she needs some time to decompress Honestly, she needs another problem to distract her, a puzzle like the puzzle Perrin provided her when he learns about his wolf powers. Robert Jordan was a volunteer soldier who probably felt tremendous fear. He volunteered to join the army. He volunteered for a particularly dangerous job as a helicopter gunner. He probably felt lots of terror, lots of strain, and he probably felt the occasional regret. He probably second-guessed himself. Like he shows with Egwene, he probably had moments of buyer's remorse. But he also served two tours. When they're in Camelin, Egwene is given the choice to stay behind. When they hear about the Eye of the World from multiple sources, and Moraine, who it's becoming clearer, has all along been willing to kind of let Taviran and the Pattern guide things, says... Well, okay, everything's telling us we need to go to the Eye. Egwene is given the choice to stay behind. The boys don't have a choice. I mean, Maureen says they do, but they really don't. The Dark One has been in their dreams, or who they think is the Dark One, has been in their dreams talking about the Eye of the World, and they're Taviran. But Egwene can stay and go on to Tarvalon when the coast is clear. But she vehemently refuses. Stay behind? Let the rest of you go off into danger while we hide under the covers? I won't do it. She caught the Isidai's eye and drew back a little, but not all of her defiance vanished. I won't do it, she muttered stubbornly. The first time, Egwene goes off naively seeking adventure. The second time, she's been through some shit and hasn't had much time to recover. But she's afraid for her friends, and she wants to protect them. And now, rather than the volunteer who's in it for personal gratification, she's all about the man next to her. She wants to help her friends, and she's not going to let them go into danger and stay back. And if that means more trauma and strain, 
so be it. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of Podcast of the Dragon. I've really enjoyed doing this exploration of Egwene. It's been super fun and illuminating, but I'm really ready to move on. I'll probably do another episode in this book before I get into the Great Hunt, and I'm super excited about that. The story really opens up, and there's going to be a whole bunch of different themes and subjects to explore, and it's going to be great. You can find me on Twitter at WarderGray. That's gray with an E. Check out Watt Trivia and Games. That's on Twitter at Trivia Watt. You can click the t- you can click the link to the Discord. Podcast of the Dragon has its own channel on that Discord, so you can talk to me there. It's an awesome Discord. You can play on a whole bunch of different teams, um, play a bunch of different games. There's a content hub where you can check out a whole bunch of different Watt content creators. Uh, you want to email me? You can do that at podcastofthedragon at gmail.com. Drop me a line, give me constructive criticism, suggestions for future episode topics, any questions you might have. My music is by Kevin McLeod. I'm the Grey Warder, and I think we should all be like Egwene and embrace our inner ideal. Make sure you veil your faces, 